1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, you know, we've been in this core commitments series now. This is week five, and uh, many of you know this, but we at Fellowship don't usually do topical uh, messages. You know, really, we're, we like to go through books of the Bible. I think that's the best way to, to preach the Word because it, it holds us to a, a very scriptural standpoint and standard, and we want to extract from God's Word. And so uh, today, <clears throat> we're going to continue this topic. Series, but I'll be honest, every time we've been here, I've been out of my comfort zone because this is a little bit outside of where I usually fall, and yet uh, I have a lot to say every time that we've been here, which some of you guys are like, yeah, we've noticed, right? Uh, today is, is no different, but I, I'm going to try to not hold us too long. Listen, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 holds a great word for us today as we discuss communion. We're going to have the Lord's Supper. It's synonymous terms. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together in just a few moments. Uh, in case you're curious, we don't usually start the sermon this early in the service, Usually it would come later on after a couple more songs that we would do, but we're going to have sort of a, more music at the end to sort of commemorate a response to what we're doing today, and we'll see that as we go through. <clears throat> you know, we call this the Lord's Supper, and I don't know, uh, I think subliminally we probably think about this in our minds, even though we may not have given a whole lot of thought to it, but this isn't much of a supper, is it? Think about it. it Supper, really? I mean, does this really reach your standard? What if, what if you got home one evening and, and your spouse or maybe your mother was like, all right, guys, time for supper, and she puts a, a tiny little cup in front of you and a little tiny wafer, and you'd say, try again, mom, or, or try again, honey. This is not quite going to do. This little wafer and shot glass of grape juice hardly constitutes a supper. I mean, I've had individual Cheerios that are more feeling, filling than that wafer. It's not much of a supper. Supper fills and satisfies, we may say. You may think of a steak and baked potato. Now, that's a supper, right? It's filling. It is full. It's substantial. Leaves you full. And so you look at the screen behind me and see that I've titled today's message, The Best Meal Ever? Question mark. I mean, really? Can we really say this is much of a meal, much of a supper? I'm going to suggest to you today that it is indeed. Today, I want you to see that while a steak and potato fill physically, they ultimately leave you empty. Today's supper is different. <clears throat> the reason we can say that that wafer and juice are a supper is not because of how they satisfy us physically, but how what they represent satisfies us spiritually. The very best supper is one that leaves you feeling extremely satisfied, full. And I suggest to you that this one does just that. This morning we're going to see that this supper is designed to fill us, satisfy our hearts, and so today as we enter into a time of looking at God's Word, what we're really going to do in, in the first part of the message is looking at how we're to prepare our hearts for this that we're about to do. Preparing our hearts. And the second part will be what we're supposed to do while we are partaking of the Lord's Supper. So it's kind of broken into two parts. How to prepare our hearts and how God is preparing our hearts. And also what's supposed to be our state of mind and heart as we are entering into the Lord's Supper together. So if you have your Bible, let's look together. <clears throat> It'll also be on the screen behind me. In 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to look at verses 17 through 26 this morning. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 26. <clears throat> and it says this. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? 
Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You've heard me say both now, both the Lord's Supper and that synonymous term, communion. They are synonymous. Communion may be a little lesser used in in this denomination or maybe in your circles, but these these terms are used synonymously. That word communion, which is sort of a replacement word for what we say is the Lord's Supper, it means, believe it or not, to commune, right? And to commune means to come together, to share space and time and share fellowship and share life. It literally means the coming together. This is communion. It's the coming together. The Lord's Supper is coming together in two ways. It's a vertical coming together and a horizontal coming together. Because we are not only communing with God vertically, we certainly are doing that. We're coming together with our Lord, but we're also coming together with each other. It's a horizontal communion as we as the body of Christ come together. God ministering to us and us ministering to one another. This is communion. In our passage Paul had just got done commending the church at Corinth. Back in verse 2, he sort of commends them. We're not going to look back at those things, but not here. Right here, he doesn't commend them. There's a lot of things that this church has done wrong. Some they do right. But Paul is here not commending them, but sort of coming at them and giving them a word of reproof. This begins a large section, and we're not going to come back to 1 Corinthians after this week, but I want to just tell you, this part of this letter from the Apostle Paul It begins a large section of this letter concerning what coming together as a church should look like. To do so in a way that loves one another and honors God. And so in that sort of frame, coming together to serve one another, love one another, and honor God, certainly you could argue that the Lord's Supper fits in that context, right? Coming together to love one another and honor God. That is the purpose of the Lord's table. And so, if you're taking notes this morning, I'm going to give you just a couple of things as far as it comes to preparing our hearts for this Lord's Supper, preparing our hearts for communion. And the the first one is, it's horizontal, and that is coming together and seeking unity with the family. It's coming together and to seek unity with the family. It's one way that we can prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, which we will take towards the end of our time this morning, to come together and seek unity with the family. When we come together for communion, or to be honest, I would argue not just for communion, but for corporate worship every Sunday, we come to meet with God in worship, but also to meet with one another in fellowship. I've always said this, and you've heard me probably say this a few dozen times, and that is, I think our church is appropriately named. We are a fellowship of believers, a family of God's people that come together. That's why we say This is my church family. You guys ever use that terminology? This is my church family. It's because we say brothers and sisters in Christ. We are more than just a a social club that gets together on Sundays. This would be a heck of a social club because you guys are great, right? But more than that, that is so shallow. A social club, come on. There's nothing weighty to that. This is a family, a family of believers. Not a perfect family. No family is, but it is a family bound by our love for one another 
and our love for Christ. And this Lord's Supper is a family dinner. It's a family meal meant to be taken together. That's why it's, I would say, suggest to you it's not a good idea to take it by yourself or with your wife on an airplane somewhere. When you're, this, is the fam, this is the church family getting together to take the Lord's Supper. And every time we see the Lord's Supper taken in the New Testament, it is the church that takes it. And so while there's value to your you know, physical family getting together, I would suggest to you it's not best to take the Lord's Supper as a little family because it is for God's family. It's for your local church and for our church family. Every time we see it in Scripture, it's done in this way. This is a family supper, and this is the Lord's table. Now, I don't know about you, but family supper at my house now and when I was a kid, um, there was a lot of comedy that happened, man, because we always were getting at each other, and um, we loved each other like crazy. But even to this day, I got to see my entire family uh, last week or two weeks ago. I mean, all of us. I have three siblings. They all, except for one of them, has kids, and some of them, one of them has five kids. We all got together, and it was a circus. I mean, I got four kids. So it was, it was crazy having us all on the same roof. But uh, this is true of all of us who are married in the family, which is all four of us. And our spouses, the first time that we got to spend time with each other, they all just kind of looked at each other like, who are you? Because we've become somebody different when we're around our siblings. It's like we just go right back to when we were four years old and eight years old and 12 years old, and we are at each other. That's what our family looks like. I don't know if yours is the same. But when I think of a family supper, getting together at the dinner table, I don't know what you— we had a dining room when we were little. We have a dining room in my house now, but it is a playroom because of the circus, like I mentioned earlier. But maybe you had a dining room or have a dining room. And I don't know about you, but our dining room was not used very often. Is yours used a lot? Ours is not used a lot, except when it was time for the family to have supper. I didn't go in there and eat alone. It was family time. So we got together, and that was the time that we dined around the table. In fact, mom would say, no, you're not going to sit in front of the TV and eat. Today, we're having family supper. You guys know what I'm talking about? Today, we're eating in there. That's the special time. We're going to have special family time. We're like in chains being dragged in there or something. But I remember, and maybe you have uh, things like this in your house. You know, we didn't have cell phones when I was coming up, but maybe you do. And maybe you, you make your kids put the phone in a, in a basket. No phones, right? We're, we're family time. Maybe you do something like that. Take off your headphones. No, we're having family time. Get all the distractions out of the way. We're spending time as a family. In my home, it was more like no fighting, no screaming. We're not putting each other down. We were so good at that. We aren't coming and going. Stop getting up. Sit down. This is a family supper together. One in presence and one in mind. Communion is meant to be this way. It's a coming together. It's a family supper where we put away distractions and we're all together in body and together in mind. It's a unified gathering. But Corinth had not been doing this. And that's why Paul comes to them and says, the way you guys come together is wrong. It's wrong and you need to fix it. You're profaning this thing that God has brought you to together. Verse 17 says, but in the following instructions, he says, I do not commend you. You're doing it wrong. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. They often partook of the Lord's Supper weekly in early church, pretty much every church. When they got together, they would take the Lord's Supper together, mostly weekly. It was the icing on top of their gathering. But Paul says, when you do it, you're doing it for the worse. You see, the way that they did the Lord's Supper was harming their church and each of their walk with Jesus. For the worse, I mean, that's a pretty weighty statement. You may be having a cup and bread in your hands, but you're doing it for the worse. It's hurting you. Verses 18 and 19 says, 
4, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. People weren't unified. Most of them were saved. Again, Paul is addressing believers, but many of them were not living like it. In fact, earlier in this letter, he talks about those factions among them. You say you belong to this guy and this guy, and you guys are at each other. But secondly, and more importantly, it's the manner of their ceremony that Paul singles out. Look at verses 20 and 21. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, Each one goes ahead with his own meal, and one goes hungry, and another gets drunk. Every once in a while at fellowship, and maybe you grew up in a church that did this like every week even, but we have a potluck meal where everybody brings something, and it's sort of a way to come together and have a fellowship meal together. Now, what if you were to show up 30 minutes late to this fellowship meal you bring your crock pot and your dessert, and you take it to a table apart from everybody, and you sit by yourself? Apart from everyone else, you don't share your food, you don't share any fellowship, you say, that's my dessert. These are my brownies. You can't have any. If you take yours and you hoard it and you say, this isn't for you, this is is ours, we're going to sit over here and do our own thing. We're not even going to talk to you. Guys, when does a fellowship meal cease to be a fellowship meal? I would argue when there's no fellowship. That analogy is similar to what's happening in Corinth. They would bank their food together, similar to a potluck. They would all bring something from their homes. They'd put it together, and they'd say, all right, now let's distribute. Everybody has the same amount. That's the way it's supposed to be. Bank it all together, and now let's distribute it, and let's all eat together. Potluck. So they'd bank it all together, and they distribute it. But in Corinth, this is not what was happening. Instead of distributing to the poor especially, it says that in Corinth, what was happening is the rich were boasting in their wealth. They weren't sharing with the poor brothers and sisters. They were showing up drunk or maybe even getting drunk when they got together. A time designed to bring unity and mutual love had brought discord and division and resentment. They may have been eating bread and drinking wine, but they were not partaking in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, His Supper, is one of mutual love and unity, not one of division, resentment, and selfish behavior. He goes on. He just gets, almost gets louder and louder. Look at verse 22. What, he says, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing, the poor? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. He says, I will not. Paraphrase. What he's saying is, you get a house. Eat at home. Have your fill at home. The point of this meal is not to fill your bellies. It is to fill your souls. There's a way to pervert communion in such a way that you can eat the bread and drink the cup and it still not be the Lord's Supper. The contents, church, Christian, the contents of your mind and heart matter as you take this meal, this family supper, family together, which poses a few questions for us, applicational questions. Do you have division with a brother or sister in this room? Did division with a brother or sister in this family? Or maybe you, you isolate yourself 
Do you, do you hoard your love and your care for your, your family? Do you communicate to the people sitting around you that they're your family? If you're part of this church, you're not just part of a social club. This is your family. Are you a vessel of love, care, compassion to the people around you? Is there resentment in your heart towards someone in this family? Guys, that's no small thing. And it's not just a, well, I'm going to go my way and let her go her way. No, no, no. There is a way to profane when we come together. And it is to have division among you. That's Paul's words, not mine. Is your heart ready to take the Lord's Supper? Or is there something in there that needs to be handled first? The way that we take this is not a matter of mouth and digestion. It is a matter of the heart. And this supper is as much about coming together as one body of believers as it is coming together with our one Lord. We've got to be prepared for this. And some of you, it may mean that you need to have a conversation before you in good conscience can take this supper. The reason we can say this is the best meal is that it's a feast not on bread and the vine, but on the bread of life and the true vine. He said on the vine, you're the branches, right? It's the second thing as we're preparing for supper is to come hungry for the spiritual feast. To come hungry for the spiritual feast. The, the longer this, this uh, message goes, the more excited I'm becoming because of where we're going to end up, okay? This is just such wonderful, wonderful content. So I'm, I'm, just, I'm hoping that you're ready. It's, it's just showering, okay? There's a spiritual feast at hand. You see, Paul cannot commend their approach to communion because he knows the better way. Look at verse 23. <clears throat> He's outraged. He says, you're not doing it right. This is why he knows that. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. Now, I try to make a point to not assume any information when I'm teaching God's Word. I always ask myself the same question. That is, can someone come into our church on any given Sunday, and when they leave, be able to say what it means to follow Jesus and why they should follow Jesus and how one follows Jesus? In other words, someone should, should not be able to have never heard the name of Jesus, come in here, leave, and not know what it means to be a Christian. If that's the case, I have failed. Okay, so I'm going to just not assume any information. And when we, when Paul introduces here the Last Supper, maybe you've seen the painting of the Last Supper. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about the Last Supper. Matthew, Mark, and Luke detail the Gospels, detail the Last Supper as the time that Jesus gathered with his disciples right before he was arrested, given a mock trial, and crucified. Okay. This is the Last Supper. And what Paul is saying is, the Lord Jesus, the night that he was betrayed, he would, he would go away from this supper, be arrested, tried, a mock trial, beaten and crucified, right before that happened. Okay, listen, hear this. Right before he went out and was arrested, fake trial, beaten and crucified, before that happened, he sat down with his boys. He had bread in a cup, and he said, guys, I'm about to be brutally murdered. In fact, I'm going to give this morsel to the one who's going to do it. And he gives it to Judas. He says in that moment, the elements here that are at play, this bread and wine, they have significant meaning. Before he's arrested, he says, I'm going to give you something so that when it happens, you can look here to this table. 
Same thing's true for us. That when it's happened, we can look back to this table. And that's what Paul's doing. He's saying, this isn't some trivial matter. It's not some ritual we're doing. It's not just some religious thing. No, when we do this, you're looking back at a real event. When Jesus did this, the one who's brought us together, the supper foreshadowed his death. Now we look back to it. Here's what he says. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Might be broken for you. Translations kind of differ there. Which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me of me. The body and the blood. These are figurative. I don't know if you may come from a Catholic background. You may not know this word, but this is not talking about Catholic transubstantiation, which just means that the Catholics would say that literally the bread and wine become the body and blood of Jesus. This is not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying literally this has become my body. Now eat it. That's, that's, that's transubstantiation. We don't hold to that. What's happening here is Jesus is putting forward a, a marker, a symbol, a sign of this has meaning. This is more than just bread. It's just bread, and yet it's more than just bread as he distributes it. My body, he says, this cup is more than just wine. It's more than just the fruit of the vine. It is my blood. It's not really, but it's more than that, right? It takes place during the most important Jewish Feast week, which is Passover. We just got done talking about John. We went through the entire book of John, but you may not have been here for that. And so if you didn't hear those things that we talked about, the Passover was the most important feast week. And this Lord's Supper, the first one, the last supper, when Jesus was crucified, that took place during Passover. Matthew 26, 26 through 28 says this, and this is the way it went down. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take eat. Don't forget those words. Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, his body, his blood, for the forgiveness of sins. Please don't miss those three things. His body, his blood, for the forgiveness of sins. Now, it happened at the Passover. The Passover in the Old Testament. Go ahead and throw that that image up there. The Passover in the Old Testament had three key components, which I just mentioned, okay? A body that was, that was broken, that was a sacrificed body. The bread that they would eat, they would eat unleavened bread at, at Passover, and they would have this blood that was painted on their doorpost. What the Passover was was a feast that they celebrated, something that happened a long, long time ago. Uh, back in Egypt, when God's people were enslaved, they came to a time when God would say, I'm going to save you, I'm going to liberate you from the captive, I'm going to free you from slavery. But the way to do it is that the death angel is going to come and he's going to kill the firstborn of every family. However, and you're all guilty of this, however, if you kill a spotless lamb, spread its blood on a doorpost, and eat the unleavened bread together, that angel will pass over your home and you will be spared. Not because you're guiltless, but because another's blood and life was poured out instead of yours, the lamb. Okay? Three main components there. Again, a lamb was provided— Bread was eaten, unleavened bread was eaten, and blood was poured out. Do you hear that, right? 
A lamb was provided, bread was eaten, blood was poured out. And the reason the Passover matters is it represents God's salvation from slavery. God saves us. Now, go to the next one where we talk about communion. If you haven't figured it out, it's the exact same thing. Uh, sorry, the, the, the slide that has communion on the, on the right side as well. Do you have that one? It's okay if you don't. Look, the thing that I want you to see is the same three components are on both sides. And that is that at, at the Lord's Supper, at communion, we have a lamb that was provided, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. We have bread that is broken, my body broken for you. We have blood that is poured out. Take the cup and drink. This is the covenant of my blood. You see what I'm saying? A perfect parallel between Passover and communion. And the Last Supper happened at Passover. And guess what they both represent? Freedom from bondage. Does that sound like the gospel to anybody in this room? That's it. A perfect parallel. Does, that, does, does the sovereignty of God not just shout through that? What a beautiful design that we see the gospel at play here. That God saves. Our God saves. Listen, communion is not a mere religious ritual or even a mere symbol. It is a spiritual participation. You're not just eating a meal. You're participating in a sacrifice that was given 2,000 years ago. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, just one chapter earlier than what we're looking at today, Paul is building a case against eating meat that had been sacrificed to a pretend god, to false idols. And the guys are saying, Corinth's like, what's the big deal? It's not, they're all pretend gods. What's the big deal? But when a meal or food is devoted to something, Paul's point is that eating it is not just a matter of the body. It's a spiritual participation. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 through 18. You can look back there real quick if you want to. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 18. In that discussion, he says, the cup of blessing that we bless— talking about the Lord's Supper. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. Now, that might be a lot of confusing language, but here's why I read that. When we eat and drink, we become worshipful, listen, participants in the cross of Christ. We become participants. The same reason Paul said, don't eat meat sacrificed to false gods. He's saying, eat the Lord's Supper dedicated to our God because you're participating in something worshipful. Guys, listen, we are not just doing a symbolic thing here. We are doing a hyper-spiritual thing. There is no meal that you eat that is more vital to your existence than this one. You eat a lot of meals. They're all important, most of them, maybe not dessert. Meals are important to your existence. There is no meal that you eat that is more vital to your existence than this one. Physical meals take the back seat to spiritual meals. Again, we talk about baptism, just a symbol. It's not just a symbol. The same way the Lord's Supper is not just a symbol. It's a sign. Signs point to things. And signs also require a response. You know this to be true. A stop sign is not just a symbol. It's a sign. And you know what the sign is? Do something. Stop. That's what a sign does. It instructs. When you sign a document, it's not just a symbol of, of alphabet letters. Oh, that's, those are cool symbols. Yeah the, yeah, the letters that you wrote down are symbols, but isn't it a sign of your approval, right? It's a sign of approval. That's what a signature is. When you, football season's starting up, praise the Lord, right? 
Football season's about to start, and when you see those guys hold those big signs on the sideline, it's got pictures on it, or, and the quarterback looks over, what's he doing? He doesn't go, that's a cool sign. I don't know what we should do, guys. That's not what happens, right? He says, that's a sign, and that sign is an instruction, right? That sign is an instruction. That's what signs are. They require some sort of response. And the Lord's Supper is not just a symbol where we're supposed to say, neat symbol. No, no, no. It's a sign. And signs instruct us. And they instruct us, this one, of four responses. And I'm going to provide you each one of them quickly, okay? Number one response is to remember. In fact, I haven't looked lately, but I think it says remember on the front of that table, doesn't it? Clint, does it say that on there? Okay, it says remember. Okay, most of them do, but this one also says remember. Why is that? Because we're supposed to remember something. That's part of our response. Part of our action during the Lord's Supper is to look back. That's what remembering is, right? We're looking back. When you see the elements, that means think of Jesus. When you see the cup and the bread, think of Jesus. Remember the awful display of murder. We should grieve because we remember what this is pointing to, right? She calls to grieve, but listen, that murder was our victory, wasn't it? That brutal death was our victory. And so while we grieve, we also rejoice. That's what it looks like to remember Jesus. It said in verse 25 that this is the new covenant in my blood. New covenant. Covenant's an agreement. That's what a marriage is. It's a covenant. It's an agreement that we're going to stay together till death do us part. Jesus says, this new covenant is in my blood. Well, what was the old covenant? The old covenant was a covenant of works, a covenant of law. That if you obey all these laws back in the Old Testament, the Mosaic law, you do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, then you get fellowship with God. But what it came down to is that no one could fulfill that covenant. No one could measure up to that law. And so no one got fellowship with God. No one kept intimacy with God. And God sent a new covenant. The wages of sin were death and separation, but the new covenant in the name of Jesus is that Jesus would take our place. We couldn't hold the law. He would fulfill it. We couldn't be perfect. He was perfect. We were going to die, and yet he died. The new covenant is that by faith, we will not be broken and severed from God, but by faith, we'll be united to him in glory. New covenant. This is what the Lord's Supper is ushering in. As Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant by my blood. So, do this in remembrance of me? I'd say, how could we not? How could we not do this in remembrance of him? But remembering the sin that he died to destroy should lead us to reflect, which is number two, on the fact that we still struggle with it. As we remember, that which grieves us should cause us to reflect. Reflect on what? Look at verses 27 and 28. It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. He says there's a way to do this in an unworthy manner. Now listen, I don't know about you, but every time I take the Lord's Supper, I do it unworthily, right? We all are unworthy of the perfect standard of God. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying that there is specifically a way, not that we all don't struggle with sin. We all struggle with sin. We're unworthy of the perfect standard of God. That's not what Paul is saying. 
What Paul is saying is many of those to whom he is speaking put themselves above other people. They had been selfish. We'd already talked about this. Greedy, already talked about this. Divisive, already talked about this. Jesus was the opposite of those things, right? Jesus put himself beneath, served others. He was selfless, sacrificial, and unified. Paul's point is this. Harboring unconfessed sin goes against what participating in this table is all about. And we should reflect on that. Are you harboring unconfessed sin? Paul's instruction is some of you guys need to talk to God or to a brother or sister about sin before you can participate in the Lord's Supper. It's not that we're perfect. Is if there is something that you are harboring, an unconfessed pattern of sin, that needs to be dealt with before you can come to the table. The doctrines of the world are opposite of the doctrines of Christ. The doctrines of the world are self-preservation, self-gratification, and self-serving. The world says, don't examine your failures. You're fine. You're perfect just the way you are. You don't need to change. They're the problem. You don't need to change. You're fine just the way that you are, right? That's the doctrine of the world, and it's, it's garbage. I mean, and we all, I think, at some point in our lives ate that junk up. Back in 2006, I was in college. I broke up with a girl over MySpace Messenger with a Jay-Z lyric that said, only God can judge me, so I'm gone. Either love me or leave me alone. That's a true story. I'm very cultured. At some point or another, we ate up the garbage that the world feeds us. That really is a true story, by the way. We eat up the garbage of the world teaches us. The doctrines of the world are self-preservation, self-gratification, and self-serving. Guys, listen, the Lord's Supper flies in the face of the cultural standard. The Lord's table flies in the face of the cultural standard. When we reflect, here's what you're called to reflect on. Everything, but namely a few. Reflect on your speech, how you speak to others, how you spoke to your wife this morning, how you spoke to your kids this morning. Reflect on your relationships. Reflect on your mood. Is it bitterness? Is it worry? Bring those things to the Lord's table and confess them before him. Reflect on the mental noise that you've been carrying around. Have you given God yourself resting in him, or has he just been getting the scraps? Reflect on your prayer life. Reflect on your Bible intake or lack thereof. Reflect on your current dynamic with your spouse or kids or your boss or your coworkers. Are there things that you need to toss to the feet of Jesus and say, here it is. I got issues. I need to pour them out at your feet because I'm harboring them. Do you need to apologize to anyone? Do you need to ask forgiveness from someone? Even longstanding forgiveness that's been harboring for years and years and years. Do you need to forgive someone to really forgive them? That's what it means to reflect. Have you actually worshipped today? Or is something standing in the way? This is the time to reflect. To give God yourself. And reflecting on the ways that we have sinned should lead us not to say necessarily, I can't take it, but to say, I need what this is pointing to. 
I need salvation. I need constant, sustaining grace. And it should cause us to renew our commitment to him, which is the third thing, to renew. Do you see a pattern? I really got the alliteration going this morning, don't I? I know, it's fire. Renew. And there's something wonderful that we can renew today. Guys, whereas baptism, which we looked at last week, is the initial statement of the believer that they belong to Christ, hear this, the Lord's Supper is the ongoing proclamation that still and forevermore we belong to Jesus. Baptism says from the beginning, I'm his. The Lord's Supper says every time we take it, I'm his, I'm his, I'm his, I'm his. Isn't that great? Verse 26, I didn't skip it. I'm coming back to it. Verse 26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Proclaim. This isn't just some religious thing that churches have been doing for 2,000 years. It's a deeply intimate proclamation. So he says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a deeply intimate proclamation of your soul. The goal of our proclaiming isn't just to tell God something. It's to remind, uplift, and nourish your soul in your own proclamation. We renew our food consumption several times a day. Why? Because without physical nourishment, your body will decay. And the same principle applies to your soul. The Lord's Supper is spiritual food. Come and eat. Come and eat. Renew your proclamation in saying, as I'm taking this, I'm reminding myself and being lifted up that Jesus is my substitute, that he nailed my sin to the cross. We're renewing that when we take the Lord's table together. And there's a warning in verse 17. We already looked at this, but it says that you're not doing it for the better, but for the worse. The way that you're coming together with one another, you're not coming together to worship the Lord. You're coming together with wrong things in your heart. How can you do this? There's a way to come into this room and not worship. If you come into this room dead tired, dozing off, is God getting your best? No. Is God even getting your worship? No. If you're constantly chatting it up with your neighbor, scrolling your phone the entire hour that we're here, are you worshiping? No. You're not coming together for the better, but for the worse. You see what I'm saying? There's a way to come in here and not worship at all. And God doesn't like that. He doesn't honor that. He doesn't love that. That's a problem. There's a way to come together and it not be worshipful, but it be harmful. You've heard it said, I know, I'm sure, I don't know who's the first one to say this, but Sunday morning worship begins with Saturday night decisions. You've heard, probably heard that a million times. Good. Sunday morning worship is a Saturday night decision. It begins with Saturday night decisions. That's absolutely true. You and your family got to decide the night before that this morning is a priority. I stand here every week, <clears throat> and I can't see the content of your soul, but some of you seem to be the ones whose souls are panting and are salivating to be filled. Some of you. But others, and again, I have imperfect perception, but there are several that don't seem to be here to eat. Does that make sense? Test your heart. Why are you here? Are you here to worship? If not, ask God to awaken your soul and feed you today. 
Do what you can to get here and be ready to eat. Do what you can and trust him with the rest. Verse 26 has a little part that I kind of just breezed over. It says that you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Meaning the symbolic or, or sign element of this is temporary. There's going to come a day until he comes when we take this in a very different light. And the fourth thing is that we rejoice. We rejoice because of that. Because there's a day coming when we don't take this table symbolic, we, we take it in the flesh with our Lord and bridegroom. Amen? There's a day coming when our faith shall be sight. You see, Jesus has freed us from sin's penalty and sin's power. And one day, he will return to defeat sin and the enemy once and for all, to wipe away every tear, to restore you to glory. Praise God for that. He alluded to that. In Matthew 26, after he'd taken the Lord's Supper, he said to his disciples in verse 29, Matthew 26, 29, he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That means it hasn't touched Jesus' lips ever since this day. And one day and the next day he takes it, it's going to be with you and me in glory. Heaven's going to be a party, y'all. It's going to be a party because of Jesus. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we anticipate the party. It's worth rejoicing. When I was a kid, my mom would make brownies or cookies or cake. She loved making desserts. And my older brother and I would always compete over who gets to lick the bowl after you get all the stuff out. You know what I'm talking about? You guys know? And um, it would end up, we'd just fight over it. It's basically what always happened. Um, that licking the bowl is not the real thing, right? The, the meal, it, it hasn't been baked, it hasn't been fixed, but it, it's a taste, right? And it does taste delicious. But you eat it and you're just like really, you know, all over the spoon because you're like, no, I want more, I want more. It's empty, but I want more. The Lord's Supper is like that. It's just a, a little bit on the spoon, but the real thing is coming, man. And that's worth rejoicing over. You anticipate it and you look forward to it. When we take the Lord's Supper, we remember, we reflect. A lot of things happening here. We renew, but we must rejoice because this is temporary. The real thing is coming. If you come into this place today and you've heard a lot of things about the gospel, you've heard a lot of things about what it means to follow Jesus, but you've never done that. And that, that wave of conviction maybe hitting you, thinking, you know, you keep talking about a, a table that we're going to have with Jesus one day, and I'm not confident that I'm in the fold. I'm not confident that I'm going to be. I want you to know that God is burdening your heart with that information, with that conviction for a reason. It's not to make you leave and feel bad. It's that you would give it up. Just give it up. And for the first time in your life, be able to say confidently, one day I will be with him in glory. And that's my prayer for you today. That if you've never come to a point in your life where you've confessed Jesus as Lord and believed in the cross of Christ to save you from your sins and the empty grave that you will one day be resurrected, today may you come. This communion imagery, I mentioned it looks back to the Passover, but it really starts, and this is crazy, 
it really starts even before that. It goes back all the way before Exodus to the Garden of Eden. Do you remember what the tempter said to Adam and Eve? They had the forbidden fruit, right? And he goes, come on, take, eat. What does Jesus then say in the Lord's Supper, in the Last Supper, in that upper room? Guys, take, eat. A curse that began in the garden would be reversed when Jesus was arrested in that garden. Bookends that remind us that as we take and eat, we are not being compiled with the curse of Adam, but the freedom and salvation in the name of Jesus from separated in Adam to welcome in the name of Christ.